you don't belong here. That is what my mind used to tell me. And it was a lie. But before my trauma was healed, I used to feel like an unwelcome outsider just about everywhere I went. Do you have this? You start out like with a feeling of hope that that not belonging feeling is caused by you know, a bad group, a bad person, or like snobby people. So you try again. You try to be part of a new group, and you try to fit in and belong. But then sooner or later, something in you gets triggered and the same feeling takes over. And you feel like you have no choice but to get away from the group. You don't belong here. That is one of eight lies that childhood trauma tries to tell you. And these are forms of trauma-driven thinking. And we know now that these very thoughts are common. They're a totally normal part of complex PTSD. And if you grew up with neglect and abuse, you might relate to what I'm saying. It's such a primal need, right? To be part of the tribe, to be recognized and included, for people to get you. And that's why the belief that we don't belong anywhere is one of the most painful lies that your trauma tells you. It helps if you can just name it. When you name it, you can get a little distance from it. It's like, could it be true that I don't belong here? Hold on. When you name it, you can begin to separate and see what you're saying and realize that your CPTSD is doing some thinking for you and it's very distorted. So that was number one. Let's go over the other seven lies. And just in case you're believing any of these lies right now, I want to help you break the spell and come back to what's real. Okay. So the second lie is you are permanently damaged by your trauma and therefore you're never going to get a fair shot at life. Do you ever feel like that? Yes, you do. <laughs> Lots of people feel that way, not just traumatized people. If you grew up uh, with violence going on in the house, with alcoholism and drug addiction, so often that stuff goes along with poverty and shame and this feeling that you have to separate from everybody and you have to hide what's going on at home. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you think that you're so damaged that you're never going to get a fair shot, it starts to echo across all these like actual experiences where you didn't get a fair shot. Like it wasn't fair that you didn't get to be safe when you were a kid. And it wasn't fair that your parents didn't just like back you a hundred percent and believe in you and, and support you and trying to grow up and become yourself. Like if they antagonize that for you, how are you going to come to believe that you do have a fair shot, that the world is your oyster? This kind of like insidious lie, it, it gets in there really deep and it can take a lot of work to root it out that you are permanently damaged, which you're not certainly causes lasting symptoms. And I'm saying you can heal symptoms and you may never be in mint condition, like how you would have been if, if nothing had ever happened, but that's literally impossible. That's like magical thinking to think that there was a hypothetical you where nothing bad ever happened. You are not permanently damaged. The damage that you're having now is mostly not permanent. You can heal, you can make progress. And actually if you could take this, there are certain little like bad threads, of the CPTSD that show up in your, in your, in the way you see the world and in the way you express yourself. If you could change just one or two of those, it could make a profound difference. It could start to make it a lot easier to change the other ones. Let's just take that lie that you're permanently damaged, that you can never get a fair shot. And let's just chuck it out of here. 
you're going to face a lot of obstacles in your life, but when you face them with some tools to start healing your trauma, it can be a whole different experience than what you've had in the past. All right. So hang in there. All right. Third lie we got to get rid of is that people are out to get you. That's almost never true. And I have to say that out loud because that's one of the lies that really got in there with me is a belief that people actually want the worst for me. When people are kind, they, um, they don't really mean it, that it's self-interested or when they're indifferent, it's because they're against me. One of the biggest things I learned, I went back to a high school reunion some years ago. And when I was in high school, I was kind of like an oddball. I was, I, I was a punk kid. I had the perception that all the popular people, all the preppy kids, all the ones who appeared to me to have it all made, that they had this happy little world and that they didn't want me in it. And by some fluke, like when Facebook came out, I ended up friends with one of the most beautiful and popular girls from my high school. It was very unlikely. She was beautiful. She was popular. But once we were both adults, we were just women, you know, we became friends. And I made the bold move and I flew to her city and spent the weekend with her one time and we had a really great time. She was so kind. She made all these gifts for me and she welcomed me and she was so kind and we spent long hours talking. And first of all, I found out that her high school experience wasn't all perfect. In fact, it was quite traumatic. It may have been um, as bad and in some ways worse than what I had been through. And of course, I had just thought I was the only kid in the world who was going through anything. But also I, she said, you remember those parties we used to have out in the Arroyo? And I said, no, I, I was never invited to those parties. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but I was never included or, or anything. And she said, really? Because we all thought you were really cool and funny and nice, but you always just kind of walked on by. You wouldn't even talk to anybody. I had my eyes opened that there actually was like love and friendship around me, but I couldn't see it yet. I couldn't see it yet because my trauma was telling me this lie that people were out to get me. All right. The fourth lie we got to get rid of is that you better not be too picky and you better just take whatever comes along because it's probably all you're going to get. I think it is like a particular lie that's very common with people who were neglected and it's really bad. And if it gets into your romantic relationships, man, are you going to have a life of trouble? Of course you need to be picky about who you get together with learn as you have relationships and when you're traumatized and you're working on it and you're working on it and you're trying to get better is that a lot of the trouble starts in the choice you make. And you've probably seen, you know, I have, I have a whole course on dating where I go into this in depth about the, the kind of thinking that leads to bonding with somebody who isn't even who you wanted. Like, you know, getting into the relationship, this isn't the one, this isn't somebody that you really respect, but you get all attached to them that when you're neglected, you have that attachment wound and you're carrying it around. It's like this giant, like super glue thing that just like globs onto people. It doesn't just do it randomly. And I'll be honest with you, what, what causes that bonding to happen real fast without any kind of like foresight is casual sex. All right. But if you're going in and bonding with people before you even know them, there's almost always this period of time where you sort of are coming out of it going, Whoa, what have I done? I don't even like this person. But if you have a fear of abandonment, you just hang out in that relationship anyway. You just stay and stay and stay and stay and then like complain and resent and try to change them until finally somebody leaves. And if you have abandonment trauma, it's probably going to be them. And that's the embarrassing thing. It's like you never even like them and you're sitting there like, ah, I got dumped. 
and um, I'm laughing now, right? But it's really painful when it's happening. So you do get to be choosy. Of course, you need to choose somebody who you think really highly of. There will be more. You heal some of the prickly behaviors and the strange like running away from relationships or glomming on too fast, all of those things. Those have all been getting in the way of, of developing like a great relationship with the people who come along. When all those symptoms are calmed, when your triggers are calmed, you're going to find that you're a lot more attractive than you used to think. And people are going to take an interest in you. You being yourself without all that fear and kind of push pull, you doing that can be really sexy to people. So don't ever fear. You will have more chances in healing. And I don't care how old you are. I talked about my friend Gladys here. She died a few years ago. She was this wonderful person in my life. She was a friend's mom and she lived up the street and she looked out for me and she taught me to knit and she taught me to cook and she took me to summer camp and she let me take piano lessons at her house because I didn't have, you know, that kind of means at my house. She was this really good person in my life, but she had this really awful husband and I didn't like him and I didn't feel safe around him. I connected with her some years before she died and she had this incredible news that she had been widowed some years back and she had gotten together with a guy that she had known for a long time and it ended up being the most incredible, beautiful relationship of her life. And she said she was sorry she stayed so long in this bad relation, this bad marriage with her husband and that the five years she had with her husband before he passed away at the age of 90, those years were by far the happiest years of her life. And she was, she was in her 80s. So never think it's too late when you become free with yourself and you have less fear, less resentment, less push, less pull, and more joy, you're going to be able to attract and be attracted to someone who totally loves you as you are. We're going to get rid of that lie. And then we're going to get rid of another lie. And that they kind of go together. And this one, I never hear it talked about, but I sure have it myself. And I'm going to guess that a lot of you have it. And it's this lie that everything is temporary. Like you can never really like commit and choose the house you really want or have the friends you really want or buy the jacket that you really like. You can't do that. That sometime in the future, you're going to be in your real life and you'll be able to get the thing you really want. But right now you just get some temporary thing that doesn't really fit and you don't really like it and it doesn't really reflect you. Am I the only one who has that? Everything is temporary. My healing is to start to understand and experience that as much as I felt like people have let me down in terms of their commitment to me, like my, my mother, um, you know, my first husband, uh, people I dated, certain friends, that people had let me down in their commitment to me. I had never really made a commitment to anything. I never really committed to a person, a friend, a job. You know, I always had kind of like one foot out the door. I always kept myself sort of hold, held apart from that. And I think that is coming from a similar place as the lie that I don't belong. But there's like this thinking like that somewhere out there, there's this place where I do belong and then I can buy the jacket and I'll find the house. And I'm learning like no time like the present. You might as well have something you like right now. And anyway, you know, one day that whatever jacket you have, it's going to wear out and you're going to get another jacket and that one can suit you on that day. So we begin to make commitments and that's what counters that lie. Get rid of another lie. Here's one for you. Your negative experiences prove that your fears are true. <laughs> so 
you go through life thinking, you know what? I think that secretly I'm really unlovable. I think that I'm really like not even like other people. And if anybody knew who I really was, they wouldn't even want to be with me. Then out of that place, when that lie is driving you, who do you get together with? You get together with like whoever you get together with temporary person. And then guess what? They don't accept you. They don't accept you. You haven't shown who you really are. You haven't been like kind of like vibrating and shining at the personality you actually have. Maybe you people please, or maybe you put up a tough exterior, but no one falls in love with your people pleasing. That is not even lovable. What's lovable is your real self. And it's not crazy to think that it's not safe to be your real self when your real self still has a whole bunch of activated trauma and that every time you get your feelings hurt, maybe you lash out or you, you know, run away for three days. Yeah. You, it's not safe to show your real self. Then your healing has got to be like the place you start. You can't just say, I'll find a great relationship and then I'll heal. I do think that certain relationships have worked some magic on people from time to time, but I wouldn't bank on it. I would get to work on your healing right now. And just remember like the relationships you get into love comes to town and you feel that mutual like thing coming up of, you know, <laughs> you're feeling that heart connection with somebody that heart connection is always going to be built upon like where you are now in your healing and where they are. And there's going to be some kind of a match there that even makes it a viable relationship. So the more you kind of come up in your own healing, the more your heart is going to connect with people who are also kind of somewhere in that range. And that's what you want. That's what you want. You want to be getting together with people who are up here with you. And that's a very positive thing for your healing. When somebody does that, so you may have heard me talk before that one of the signs, if you're dating somebody and you're wondering like, is this the person I want to marry? One sign to look for is does their very presence in your life sort of call you up? Does it cause you to desire naturally to kind of just come up a level. That's a very good sign about somebody. And if you're like me, you know exactly what it's like to have the opposite, to be with somebody where it kind of like you start becoming your worst self and then you even go down another level. And next thing you know, it's like, you're like, this isn't even me. I don't even know how I got this way. And you have to leave the relationship to change. Firstly, there are people who are really good for you and you want to be ready for them and you get ready by doing your healing. All right. Seventh lie. You ready? I think you're going to like getting free of this one. It is the lie that tells you that you need to stay angry because if you're not angry, you will be defenseless in the world. You'll have nothing to protect you. Now, when I say that, and I tell you that I used to operate that way, I think it's easy to see like, well, that's a bad way to live your life, but ask yourself in some way, are you doing that? Are you holding on to the stuff that makes you mad? the resentment that you had, the identity of somebody who's very, very hurt. And I know you were very hurt. Like that isn't, that's not a lie. You were hurt. You were traumatized. It's not your fault, but are you letting that be your identity and holding onto it as if being angry and hurt is going to protect you from having it happen again? Is that when you're walking around identified as a person who's abused, it, it does tend to happen again. It's a weird little magnet effect. It does tend to happen again. And it's a lot of work to start like growing your identity to, to, to something a little better than that, to somebody who has been hurt and who has healed the wound.
that's a much better place to come from and then you start to be oriented towards healing and you start making friends who are also real like really into like healing and people who get it about you and they know what you've been through and they're really supportive of you and you're in some situation where something is upsetting to you it's so good to have friends who are like oh i know this situation is hard for you let me hang out with you i'll walk with you to the car that's what you need that's what you need it's possible that in the future you're not going to have to deal with these painful moments all by yourself that through an iterative process of healing a little here a little here a little here you're going to start having more support in your life all right and you won't need your anger to protect you you know what you're going to have you're going to have friends but even more importantly you're going to have boundaries <laughs> and they're this great alternative to anger and defensiveness a boundary i've been talking about that a lot in videos lately so sometimes naturally cptsd people get confused we get confused because what is a boundary and we think it's when we go i need you to not talk about that topic because it triggers me okay that's not a boundary that is a demand now you can phrase it as a request but what i want to clarify for you is what the boundary is is that if you if you ask somebody and say i don't want you to talk about that i don't want you to talk about that i don't want you to talk about that that your boundary is the point when you walk away from that person in your recovery you're going to have crazy boundaries you're going to have like gorilla boundaries they're just like you know here 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 you can always tell somebody who's kind of early in the process they're like putting up boundaries and the boundaries are a little bit rough right they're a little bit hard on people they're a little bit outsourcing responsibility to other people but better you should err on that side than to have no boundaries like it's okay in your early recovery that it's a bit messy that you're a bit ambitious i would call that the adolescence of your healing when you're just you know oh, you're just getting free and you're just saying stuff and it's all it's all positive and if you stick with it it'll start smoothing out to where even have to tell people how they need to behave because you've actually learned to calm your triggers very rarely are you going to have to have an expectation of somebody else or a requirement that they be a certain way you still get to do that but it's going to be less often you're not going to have to outsource that responsibility to them you can relax you can relax and you can hang out with people who maybe aren't the kind of people you would have hung out with before still have certain situations where I would never want to be in again I don't want to be in a situation like I never again want to be in a car that feels out of control okay that's a boundary you know what my boundary is get out of the car and I did that recently I got out of the car it was very upsetting to everybody but the fact was never again do I want to be in a moving car totally afraid of the way somebody's driving it's not it's not something I'm going to let happen again if I can help it what I had a hard time with in getting out of that car was doing it without doing an adolescent boundary of just like blah, 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 you know yelling about it um, so it wasn't very graceful at first but I was able to wrap it up later and the thing was at least I got out of the car at least I got out of the car and sometimes that's what healing is you know the first order of business is to do the thing that is crucial for you to do and you worry about kind of smoothing it out with everybody later it's a good memory on top of a bad memory of just remembering like all the little moments when I got free enough to like take care of myself right the last lie that I'm going to talk about in this video is oh and it's painful to say this is a lie that presents itself as something very nice but it's a lie and it's that somebody will eventually come along and save you do you have that oh, I totally had it and oh that lie set me up for so much like grief and disappointment 
I went through a lot of hard times when my kids were little. I split up when they were very small. I didn't have enough money. Then I had all these medical problems and I really, really, really needed somebody to save me. And at one point I thought somebody had come along to save me and they, they, they were like, I'll save you. I'll take care of everything. And they turned out to actually be a very bad person. And I was vulnerable to that. That didn't work out. And in the pain that I had after that, I had to face this fact that actually not only was that person never going to save me and not only had, you know, my ex-husband not saved me, but that actually no one was ever going to come along and save me, that that was a fantasy. It was probably a projection of my like baby self waiting for a parent to come and pick me up. Who knows? I won't try to overanalyze it but it was really hard to root out that, that fantasy. It was a pleasant fantasy. It was always like, someday I'll have somebody I can talk to about everything that's happened to me. I mean, I really thought that. And I have this really nice marriage right now, but one of the painful adjustments when we were first married and in the early part of our relationship was that even though I had been through a lot of hard times and they were over, like talking about what happened, always felt a little weird. Like it wasn't like the fantasy of like there, you know, it's all over now and it's never going to happen again. Like nothing he could say or do ever gave me that feeling. And I went through this rough patch where I was, I was angry and disappointed and like the stages of grief, like surely there's, surely there's some other option. There's something that he should say that would give me that feeling. And for me, the feeling ultimately came through my spirituality. And if you're a spiritual person, you may know what I'm talking about, that there are some things that if it didn't happen when you were a baby, like no human is ever going to be able to give that to you. They can give you a lot. I have a, this like lovely, stable life with a man I love, but no one is saving me. And I developed a new vision of what that's like. So in addition to making me feel safe and knowing that, that ultimately I'm okay and I'm cared for and that all my troubles are known, that I'm not alone with them, that also I have this safety and freedom in that I know how to deal with the harsh feelings that come up. And that is my wish for you, is that as you remove all of these lies from your consciousness about being no good and not belonging and needing to be angry and, and needing to be saved, that what's left after that is a peaceful confidence that no matter what happens, you're going to know what to do. You're going to know what to do. And these are the tools that I teach are the ones that will help you know what to do, that will help you deal with harsh emotions when they come up, how to, how to deal with it when you've gotten yourself into a situation where you've said something terrible and you want to back out of it and you want to apologize. These are the things that I'm always teaching in the videos and in my courses. First, I want to tell you the bad news. You cannot make a person with complex PTSD change. You can't make them heal. You can't make them learn about the adult effects of abuse and neglect in childhood, and you can't even make them admit there's a problem, which you probably noticed. But the good news is there are things you can do to help a loved one accomplish all these things themselves without being controlling or judgy, because I'm telling you, we don't like that. I'm Anna Runkle, also known as the Crappy Childhood Fairy, and I teach people practical steps that help heal the symptoms of childhood PTSD and CPTSD. And in this video, I'm going to give you five tips for how you can genuinely help another person's healing and at the same time, help yourself to enjoy more kindness, less chaos, and more closeness with this person you love. 
who's still struggling with trauma symptoms. Now, if you are the person with CPTSD, this is for you too, to give you words, to ask for what you need and to share if you need to give the people who you care about a roadmap for what actually helps you in the healing and the change that you are working on. I get at least one letter or comment every day from someone who's hurting because of a loved one's CPTSD behavior. Things like being shut down and cold or flying into rages and saying cruel things that are out of character. And for the people who love people like that, witnessing this behavior and getting hurt by it becomes its own kind of trauma, doesn't it? And so in these letters, a lot of people ask me, what can I do to get this person I love to see that this is complex PTSD and that they need to change? And they're probably right. It probably is CPTSD. They probably need to change, but I'm going to tell you what I tell them. For you, the person who wants their loved one to freaking heal already and change, here's the thing. What actually helps them is probably not what you're doing right now. It's counterintuitive, I know. And in fact, your pressure could even be making things worse. I'm talking about those of you who are doing all the research. You're the one watching my videos and writing me letters, and you're knocking yourself out trying to construct this better reality where your loved one gets it, they get help, they get better. And if you've been in this situation before, you know how heartbreaking it is to love someone who's struggling. And it feels like you can see like right there what the problem is. And it seems like you know exactly what they should do. And it feels like hope, but, but it makes you suffer, doesn't it? It's a vision of how someone could be if they could only do what I want them to do, what I'm seeing, what seems so obvious to me. Maybe you've learned this the hard way too. It doesn't help. It doesn't help people when we push a vision like that. In fact, it can make things harder. It can get in the way of a natural process where they feel the need to change and their next step just appears to them in their own vision of their lives. Now, the fact is we don't honestly know really what another person needs to do. It's easy to be wrong about some vision we have about another person's possibilities. What it really is, is an effort to control an out of control situation. And it's totally understandable because the situation really is out of control. And if you're a parent, it's appropriate to step in and take control of your kid's life. But even then it doesn't always work. And if you're not a parent, but a spouse or a friend, unless we think a person is in imminent danger to themselves or other people, it's actually not appropriate to control them. If you've ever had someone try to control you, it's not only insulting and hurtful, but it, it does what I call jamming your radar. It fills up your awareness with noise when really what you need to heal trauma is some space, some calm awareness to notice what's happening in your body and your emotions, and then to allow awareness to form what you might do about it, to conceive of your next steps, to maybe ask some questions or even ask for help. But that's the key to ask. Asking is readiness. It's openness. A person who is asking for help can be helped. This is not like performing CPR, helping a person who also needs to help themselves. It requires an invitation. So you're invited to give your opinion and help. So until your loved one with CPTSD invites you to help, what can you do? Okay, here are my five tips. First of all, be safe. This video is all about helping the many, many people with CPTSD who are very safe, not going to hurt you. 
but in a few cases, abusive behavior is also connected to trauma symptoms. So I just need to spend a moment here saying you should never, ever tolerate violent or abusive behavior from anyone, anything from physical hitting or making threats or say driving recklessly while in a rage with family in the car. That is not okay. So it's your job to remove yourself and any children from dangerous situations like that. Now, could it improve later? Yes. But in the moment where there's danger, talking it out or trying to help is not what's needed. And you also don't need to excuse their behavior just because they had a hard childhood. It could be a factor, but it's never an excuse. Most of the time, the thing that makes a loved one's CPTSD symptoms hurtful is not abuse per se. It's more like unreasonableness or emotional chaos, sadness, being unreliable, being very reactive or argumentative, creating tension around the house. Now, this is all stuff that feels pretty bad when it's happening, but in a lot of cases, it's not happening all the time. And if it were happening all the time, it doesn't matter what you call it, you always have a right to remove yourself or leave. And sometimes leaving is the right thing to do. But if you're safe and you want to be in this relationship and you have a desire to be helpful, let's go over the tips. So number one was to be safe. Number two is to be encouraging. You, you keep hearing me say this lately. Discouragement is poison and encouragement is medicine. Encouragement. It's way better than trying to control someone. It's giving them space and support and love to get their clarity and their strength together to make the changes they long to make in their lives. It's so much better for you, the encourager, and it's so much better for the person who needs encouragement. Yeah. So what does that look like? When you love someone with CPTSD, you're going to come face to face with some of their deep, dark discouragement thoughts that come up out of the past. And they're going to get dysregulated sometimes. That is a brain state where thinking and emotions can get discombobulated. And it's, it's happening at the level of the nervous system. It can be really difficult to notice or control for those of us who get dysregulated. And this is a great place for people with CPTSD to start their learning. I've made a ton of videos about this. There's a whole playlist and I even teach a course on dysregulation. So you can learn more about that in the links below. Or maybe if you're invited, you can share those links with someone who you think might benefit from them. So if your loved one seems dysregulated or says they're dysregulated and they're getting overwhelmed or intensely frustrated or flaking out or overly criticizing themselves for mistakes, all of this is really common. And you can remind them that when they feel broken or like a failure, dysregulation could be part of the problem. And it's normal with CPTSD and it's not their fault. You can help them focus on that and then remind them of all their good qualities and all their progress. You can encourage them to accept that CPTSD often involves a neurological injury. It's a temporary malfunction. It's not their fault. It happens to people who weren't kept safe and loved as kids and the symptoms can be healed. Now, when you help them accept that this happened, you can accept it too. You don't have to accept hurtful behavior, but you can accept that CPTSD symptoms happen and it can take time to change them, even for people who do their very best to heal. And you can encourage them really gently, no pressure to practice re-regulation. It takes persistence, but it's easy and it usually feels pretty pleasant and makes a huge difference in moving healing forward quickly, learning to re-regulate. So I want to tell you something else about that in a moment, but the third thing is be aware. 
Sometimes you're going to be the first one who notices symptoms of trauma kicking in and you can help turn that around without making a big thing of it. So how do you know it's happening? Each person's a little different, obviously, but you might start hearing your loved one say some yucky phrase that's become familiar to you that you know tends to lead to an upset. And these are sometimes signs of what's known as an emotional flashback. And I'll put a link to my video about that below too. You'll hear them say things like, you obviously don't care, or you never do this loving thing that I want, or you only want me because whatever their fearful bad dream perception is in that moment. And what's happening is a flashback. It's not what they're seeing, but all the emotions are coming up of a terrible time in the past when these things were true and they were helpless and scared. So it's really hard to reason with someone who's having an emotional flashback. It's not a good time to ask big, deep, important questions. It's time to just offer a little help with a symptom. You can say, you seem like maybe you're getting a bit overwhelmed. Can I help? And if your loved one knows about dysregulation and agrees that it's a thing, you can use that word. You can say, you seem like you're getting a little dysregulated. Should we take a little pause? And I would encourage you not to use trauma jargon words, even the word dysregulation, if that's not the language that they use. Then it just feels like judgment and someone on a high horse. You can say things that are not judgy, but just reassuring. You can say, if you need a break, I'll wait for you. It's not a problem. I'll be right here. And this is really good, in fact, when the fear of abandonment has a grip on them. Sometimes people say hurtful things in this fear state, like they don't need you and you should just leave them and get it over with, things they don't mean. And in this case, it's just the abandonment wound talking. It's a very crude defense mechanism. And it's a terrible thing to say when you don't really mean it, and it can border on emotional abuse. But if you're in a situation where you know they don't mean it and you just want to help them through this bad moment, you can say, nah, I'm not going to leave. I'm staying with you and I'm not going anywhere. And it can be like you're talking to the person inside that defense mechanism. It can be really helpful. Now, again, I'm not recommending you just turn into a numb person and let yourself get traumatized. You're going to have to use your judgment about when you want to stick around and give reassurance and when it's better to just step back and protect yourself. Now, some people ask me, if my loved one asks me a loaded question like, do you think I'm actually crazy? Or your mom told me I ruined Christmas. Do you think I ruined Christmas? You're right. You should proceed with caution. <laughs> Because while this person is in a CPTSD state, it's a terrible time to discuss criticisms that you actually have. This is a good time to be extremely gentle. The slightest criticism is going to sound really huge to them when their CPTSD symptoms are up. So if there's anything you need them to know that you must have them know, you can make it very gentle and very small and still get through. You can say the least amount of hard stuff necessary. And then later, when everything's calmer and stakes are lower, you can talk about more what happened and what bothered you about it. Finally, the fifth tip is that if you want to help someone recover, recover yourself. You wouldn't be with this person if you didn't have a little bit of this stuff yourself. And if you didn't have it when you met them, you have it now, right? You can take my courses. You can use the techniques I teach for calming dysregulation and gaining more clarity, more freedom to be yourself. And not only will this help you deal with a loved one who stresses you out, but you just might attract them to sit down and try the techniques too. And I've been teaching this stuff for 26 years and I've never succeeded in pushing anyone to try it. I tried, but the only people who came to it came because they saw what healing looked like in me and started to ask me about it. 
Abuse and neglect in childhood can seriously damage your ability to have a loving relationship with a trustworthy person. And that's partly because of the attachment wound that happens when your mother or father isn't there for you, isn't someone you can trust. But that damage can multiply when you choose partners who are also untrustworthy, who are also not there for you, which happens with those of us with childhood PTSD, right? We get hurt in one relationship after another, and soon our ability to detect truth versus lies is almost lost. When people hurt us, we feel pain at first, and then we get confused and begin to blame ourselves. This is the insidious nature of complex trauma. The initial wound is bad, and then the way it makes you behave conjures up more wounds. Now there is a way to heal from this, and I'll explain that as part of my answer to a woman I'll call Kim, who wrote to me last week. And she says, Hey Anna, thank you so much for your work. I'm writing because I recently and abruptly broke up with my boyfriend, and I'm not sure if I did so from a regulated or a dysregulated place. So Kim is talking about something we talk about a lot on this channel, which is uh, dysregulation, which is a very common symptom of trauma from childhood, which makes it hard to think straight, makes us overreactive, and that's what she's referring to. She says, I know I'm very dysregulated when it comes to romantic relationships. I have CPTSD and intimacy triggers me quite deeply. My father was physically abusive and my mother was physically absent, living in another state. I also know I struggle with a heartbreak I experienced a few years ago when someone I was madly in love with left me for another woman. He kept insisting this woman was just a friend whenever I confronted him about it until one day he admitted they were having sex and that he was going to go on a three-week road trip with her to meet her family. I'm aware that this situation needs a lot of healing still, and in the present day, it leads me to believe all my partners will leave me for other women. That's why I'm writing today. I had been dating my most recent boyfriend for a couple of months. A few months into our relationship, he and I went out to dinner and struck up a conversation with the waitress. I thought it was harmless and polite, just a conversation, but he ended up asking for her number before we left to invite her to hang out with our group of friends. In retrospect, it feels like he was picking up another woman right in front of me. But at the time, I was trying to be the cool, chill girlfriend who's unbothered by such things. I was surprised when he started inviting her to hang out, and more surprised that she actually took up every single invitation. At first, it was in large groups, but one day he scheduled a hangout for a day I was unavailable, and it was just him, her, and his roommate, or so he says. The night after they hung out, he told me that she and him and the roommate, presumably, had been talking about different kinds of sex, and he asked me if I would be interested in a threesome with her. I imagine this is a red flag, but I was trying to be cool and unbothered. I did say I was uncomfortable with that, but maybe would be open to it in the future. A people-pleasing response, if I'm being honest. Here's my pencil where I circle things I want to come back and talk about. This continued. He would invite her to hang out on days I wasn't available and then would ask me the next day if I w was interested in a threesome. I repeatedly said no, at one point crying and telling him about my past relationship and saying I was trying my best to be secure and regulated, but that this was triggering an old wound. He repeatedly told me he would never cheat on me. 
Two nights ago, my boyfriend and I spent the afternoon together before I headed home from the, for the evening. On nights I didn't sleep over at his place, we would FaceTime each other around 10 p.m. from our homes, so I expected we would do this as usual. I messaged him around 8.30 to ask him a question and I got a notification that he was driving and that his phone was on do not disturb mode. I instantly knew something wasn't right. He's an introvert and a homebody and rarely left the house on the evenings he wasn't with me. He texted me around 10.30 saying he was out in public and wouldn't be able to FaceTime. I knew what that meant. I called him and asked where he was. After a long pause, he said he was at a bar getting drinks with her. I instantly said, it's over. I hung up, I blocked him everywhere and dropped off a bag of his stuff at his front door. That was around 11.30 and he still wasn't home. I also feel it's important to note he's made no attempt to reach out to me to try to repair the relationship or clear up any misunderstanding. I can't help but feel if our relationship was important to him, he would have immediately left the bar to at least call me back, if not speak to me in person about it. As I write this out, it sounds bad, yet I have been tossing and turning all night wondering if this was just my CPTSD and abandonment wounds talking. Maybe this was just a friendship and I was being overly jealous and controlling? Look at all the pencil action here. We got a lot to talk about. Or maybe I did something to cause him to spend time with her away from me. I truly do not know if I was right to have this reaction and it's eating me alive. I'm terrified I will always find reasons to push people away and that maybe it's best for me to ignore whenever I feel triggered or abandoned. Maybe I should, should have stayed and just pretended to ignore him spending time with her. Any advice or validation if you think it's applicable would be greatly appreciated. I feel I've made huge strides in my recovery. I meditate, journal, and do yoga every day and I'm working with two therapists. In many ways, I'm healthier than I've ever been, but when it comes to intimacy, I'm still so lost in a fog of CPTSD. Did it make sense to end the relationship? Should I have been more gentle and forgiving? I truly do not know, Kim. All right, Kim, here comes Tough Love Fairy. All right. I feel so bad that you have been traumatized to the point that you are that unclear about how to interpret your own response to what's happening in your relationship. Like regardless of how you would judge how he's deciding to do life or do this relationship, how you feel about it is everything. How you feel about it is your information and you're right now, you're totally detached from it. You're trying to use your mental powers to understand like is the way you feel okay. So let's go through this and let's just see if I can help you get clearer about your feelings and what that means, okay? So you recently broke up and you know you get very dysregulated when it comes to romantic relationships. Yep, many of us do. You have CPTSD and intimacy is triggering. Your father was physically abusive, I'm so sorry. And your mother was physically absent living in another state. Um, that will do it to a person. And you know, everybody knows that trauma in childhood causes problems when you grow up, but I just, I'm seeing so acutely what you have here and it's normal. It's like a normal thing that happens to perfectly good children who get treated like you did is that you get detached from your own judgment and perception. You can't trust your perception. 
you also feel like you're not safe to say what you really need and want and what are you actually looking for in a relationship. So sure you get dysregulated and dysregulation, you know, can kind of veer into dissociation where it makes it really, really hard to be perceptive and expressive. So that's part of it. But also it's just like this core belief gets in there to tell you that it's not okay that what you want is to be treated well. So we've been talking about this a lot. A lot of people do want monogamy. They want faithfulness. They want honesty. They want to be treasured in a relationship. And that is in conflict with the common culture right now where we're sort of encouraged. And this can be just like terrible for people with CPTSD, encouraged to hide those wants and just be the cool unbothered girl like you were. It's cool, you know, but it's not cool for you. And it does bother you. And it would bother me too. It would bother a lot of people and all the people who it doesn't bother. They're always very vocal in the comments. Like it's cool. It's fine. It's not for most people. Usually there's a, you know, a, somebody who's very controlling and deceptive kind of running that idea of that kind of really, Hey, we should have threesomes. And then one person who's trying to be cool and unbothered and go along with it because they're so afraid of being alone. But there's another option here, Kim. There's another option. All right. You don't have to like stay and put up with it. You get to leave and that's what you did. So let's go through this though. I want to help your thinking so that you feel clearer about that. All right. You had a past heartbreak a few years ago when someone you were madly in love with left for another woman and he kept insisting that she was just a friend. We're all told we're supposed to be friends, right? When there's attraction. And that's like one of my radical principles. If you have CPTSD and one person is attracted, like that's what the relationship is. It's not just friends. It just isn't anymore. And if you are in a relationship that's intended to be monogamous, hanging out with just friends where one, at least one person has attraction, you know, it's an emotional affair. So, so he kept insisting she was just a friend whenever you confronted him about it until one day he admitted they were having sex and that he was going on a three week road trip with her to meet her family. So I get it. That means that it was going on for a really long time and had turned into a big thing. And that's devastating. And I'm so sorry somebody lied to you like that. Here's what I'm going to guess though. Your history of trauma growing up messed up some of your perception that for a non-traumatized person, what was going on would have been more obvious. You know what, Kim, it was obvious to you. You kept challenging him about it. It was obvious to you, but people you've been trained to be able to listen to lies and accept them and doubt yourself instead of saying, Hey, that's a lie. You're lying to me. You go, I'm, I'm crazy. You know, I just think wrong. I'm just too traumatized. I'm just dysregulated. All right. So we're going to talk about that. I'm aware that this situation needs a lot of healing still. And in the present day, it leads me to believe all my partners will leave me for other women. And that's why you're writing. So, you know, from my perspective, it's not just that that happened. It's not just that event that needs healing. It's just you. It's, it's you and your perception and your ability to tell what's going on and express yourself and have that integrity of being. I don't think you failed to heal a past situation. You, you got dealt a bad hand of cards as a kid. And so you have some, development ahead of you. That's all. You haven't screwed up. You just have some growth ahead of you to do that you didn't get to do at the normal time. You're a normal person. You have normal wounds from having an abusive dad and a missing mom. Okay. So don't, don't be hard on yourself here. This is what it looks like. That's why, that's why this channel exists. And so many people can relate to what you've been through. All right. So you've been dating, dating your most recent boyfriend for a couple of months. 
A couple of months. All right. In contemporary culture, that means like it's already a sexual relationship. So here's my radical proposition here is that for people who have attachment wounds, which you do, you can wait a lot longer than that before forming it into that kind of attachment that happens around sex. If somebody doesn't want to date you because you need more time than that to get to know them, first of all, forget about them. If what you're looking for is the stable kind of relationship that is healing for you, that is where you feel loved and you can trust the other person, that really takes time to build. It takes time. And if you have an attachment wound that has a boyfriend, you know, has sex and immediately just all your self-esteem in life. I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying, I know what this is like, like way too much of our being then is like, Rrgh. you know, we're just like latched onto that relationship. We can't dare leave it. We'd rather turn around and attack ourselves as crazy than realize that somebody is no damn good and they're treating us badly. Okay. They'd rather do that. And so for your attachment wound to heal, you might have to do something a little different than the script that everybody around you is following. And that is to take your time getting to know somebody and finding out through experience and spending time together if you can trust them. Okay. All right. So you say a few months into our relationship, he and I went out to dinner and struck up a conversation with a waitress. You thought it was polite, harmless conversation, but then he asked for her number and invited her to hang out with a group of friends. And in retrospect, you feel like he was picking up another woman right in front of you. Well, he was, as it turns out. But at the time, I was trying to be the cool, chill girlfriend who's unbothered by such things. So I just want to go look at that horrible archetype, the cool, chill girlfriend who's unbothered by being treated as dispensable by the guy who's picking up a woman right in front of her in violation of everything that she wants in the relationship. Now, I'm not going to come down on him because for all I know, your cool chill idea means you never expressed your expectations to him. I don't blame you. I totally understand, but you, it's time to turn over a new leaf and to actually own where you're coming from and what you want in a relationship. It's not fair to a person to just start sleeping with them and think that casual sex and any sex within the first two months is casual. Um, and, and for longer too, any that casual sex is going to lead naturally to some kind of committed relationship that's monogamous to have that kind of a relationship. You'd actually need to have many deep conversations with somebody. Are they trustworthy? What do they want? Is that also what they want? Does it make sense for you to grow closer to them? Does it make sense to give your heart to them? And the thing is like, nobody tells you this, but if you delay sex, and you find out that somebody is a jerk, you can get out of that relationship with so much less like hemorrhage of your self-esteem and your self-worth. And that's just how it is. Nobody talks about that. We're all supposed to be cool and chill and be unaffected by having had sex with somebody, but does it work that way for you? I'm not like passing judgment on anybody, but anybody listening, just ask yourself, does it work that way for you? Are you able to leave such a situation unharmed? So, there it is. You might have to have a different standard. And what's interesting, how many people, when I say this, will say in the comments, there are no men who agree to that. It's like, well, I'm married to one and he's awesome. And all I had to do was make the decision that that's what I wanted. And the guy who wanted that too showed up like real fast in my life. It's funny how it works like that. When you begin to have that standard for yourself, the people who also have that standard show up. It's kind of like, you know, I have a Toyota. <laughs> 
and, and this car, I didn't realize how common it was, the color, the make, you know, I didn't realize it until I bought it. And then I was like, gosh, they're so common. It's really hard in a parking lot. I can barely find my car. Yeah, that's how it works. When you make a decision about how you want to do relationships, you'll be surprised how it turns out. And when you are making decisions out of self-respect and self-care, you're going to attract a higher caliber of person because healthy people want the kind of person who, who, who treats themselves that way, who has high expectations and who doesn't just like dumb down and hide how they really feel and go, oh yeah, whatever you want. Not to make fun of you, but just saying that's what we do. That's what we do, right? We just abandon ourselves. And then we're like shocked. Like, how could you treat me this way? It's like we, we told them it was okay through our actions through our lack of boundaries around it. Okay. So then you say, I was surprised when he started inviting her to hang out and more surprised that she actually took up every single invitation. It seems like there was probably more behind the scenes conversation about where this was heading for them, that they knew they were in on the secret long before you were. At first it was large groups, but one day he scheduled a hangout for a day I was unavailable and it was just him and her and his roommate. Or so he says, yeah. Well, the night after they hung out, he told me that she and him and the roommate presumably had been talking about different kinds of sex. And he asked if I would be interested in a threesome with her. And I imagine this is a red flag. Well, it's not a red flag if you got into a relationship thinking, I really want to find a guy that I can have threesomes with. But if you were on the template of a monogamous relationship, yeah, it's not just a red flag. It's, it's like a deal killer. It's not just like maybe something's there. It's there. It's right in your face. He would like to have sex with another person and he'd like you to as well. So he asked if you'd be interested and you tried again to be cool and unbothered, abandoned self. The self is convenient in such moments, right? How you feel like, oh my God, oh, what am I going to do? This is terrible. That's inconvenient. So you just shut that person down and then you say, I did say I was uncomfortable with that, but maybe, maybe would be open to it in the future. And you say it was a people pleasing response to say, maybe in the future, I can abandon myself completely some more, right? Um, but at least you told him you were uncomfortable with it. Okay, good job. This continued and he'd invite her to hang out on days that you weren't available. And then he would ask you the next day if you were interested in a threesome and you repeatedly said no. And at one point crying, and telling him about your past relationship and saying you were trying your best to be secure and regulated, but that this was triggering an old wound. Okay. Let me see if I can articulate this right. This is a big fallacy here that the problem here is the past wound. That's not the problem. The reason you were feeling insecure and dysregulated is because there was a massive betrayal of the relationship you thought you were in. Now I'm calling you out saying, look, it was two months in, you weren't telling him what your boundaries were. You know, he was just doing what he does. But the problem isn't that you got betrayed before. Honestly, if you, if you continue to hide how you really feel and what you really want behind this cool, unbothered girl that you put out in front of yourself, you will always be betrayed. You'll always be betrayed. And the other person will not be responsible for it because you presented yourself as somebody who was cool about it. All right. So I'm going to come back to this in the end because you really beat yourself up in the end. And I, I don't want you to beat yourself up. I want to, I, I just want you to see that you have, you play a role in this happening. It's not just happening to you. All right. 
So then he repeatedly said he would never cheat on you. Well, I don't know how he defines cheating, and I guess it's just like he he would never um, lie to you that he was having sex with somebody else or something. A threesome is not monogamy, and if that's what you want, you know, he's not promising you that at all. He's again and again saying he wants something different. He's just saying again and again he wants something different. Okay, so two nights ago, um, you spent the afternoon together, you went home, you thought you would FaceTime, you did, he wasn't picking up, and then you knew something was weird. And then he admitted that he was out at a bar getting drinks with her. So there it was. He's been dating you for two months and he just finds like you're not really into what he's into and he's interested in this new woman and you instantly said it's over. And I totally think you did the right thing. This is not the relationship for you, Kim, but I'm, I'm gonna keep going through this because I, wanted to, I just wanna speak to your doubts about it, that did you do the wrong thing? You have so much doubt about it, but I'll tell you why you did the right thing and try to help you like, like feel your own feelings about it. All right, so you hung up, you blocked him everywhere, you dropped off a bag of his stuff at his front door around 11.30. Um, I don't blame you at all, but it's high drama stuff. You know, if somebody's like sleeping with somebody else and you go to their house, you're kind of, you're opening the door to a lot of confrontation and drama that for a person with CPTSD can be off the charts triggering. And I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. Like you already had the information you needed. So I'm just for reference, just for the, you know, anybody listening and for your future, Kim, I just wouldn't do that. I would, um, you know, step back. Once you know that that's going on, just step back, don't invade privacy. It's not gonna bring you anything good that you want, okay? I also feel it's important to note, he's made no attempt to reach out to me to try to repair the relationship or clear up any misunderstanding. No. He may have been sleeping with you and, you know, just so often that feels like somebody is like really serious about you, but that's not always what it means. It's just not always what it means. He just sounds like he wasn't serious. It was a casual thing for him. He, you know, is interested in something quite different than you. And he kind of tried to see like, are you into that? He kept asking you and you weren't. And so you're not really working out for him, but he didn't try to reach out with you. You're you're not a good viable, you know, he wants to see several people at once, okay? And you can't help but feel that if your relationship was important to him, he would have immediately left the bar, at least to call back. Okay, so yes, um, if it was important to him, he would have done that. Finding out that you're not important to him, which actually is not that inappropriate so early in a relationship, it's just that it just feels like a huge violation if you've already slept with somebody. But when you break it down, it, it's, it's just not realistic to expect that sleeping with somebody means that. It's your standard, and I encourage you to embrace that standard. That once you, that if you're ever gonna sleep with somebody again, you're gonna have that opportunity. You get to have your standard, and you get to wait until your standard is met. It's expressed, you've had a discussion about it, you know you're on the same page, maybe you're even in a committed relationship already. Imagine that if the next time that you're in a sexual relationship, you know that you're loved and somebody is really serious about you. And if any misunderstanding happened, would come running after you to straighten it out. Okay, you can have that. But the only person who's going to make sure that that is the only kind of relationship you have is you. And how you're going to do that is by not having this kind of relationship. So you've got to take the time to see what the other person is about and what they intend and how they feel. And both people kind of discover that through dating, all right? In two months is too early to tell. I would say more like 
six months to 18 months <laughs> would be more like the time needed to determine how serious somebody is about you. Um, and often, like very early, people will believe that they're serious about each other, but you know, it's infatuation. So, okay, and then you say, as I write this out, it sounds bad, yet I've been tossing and turning all night, wondering if this was just my CPTSD and abandonment wounds talking. Maybe this was just a friendship and I was being overly jealous. No, honey, you were not being overly jealous and I don't believe it was just a friendship at all. So don't worry, your judgment about that is good. Let it in. What happened is your abandonment melange came in and it was so brutal that it played tricks on your mind and said, no, you're just misinterpreting this. You can't afford to leave this relationship. So abandon yourself, trick yourself, gaslight yourself and believe you're just being a jealous girl. You're, you need to be cool. You need to be the good kind of girlfriend who is cool about all this. No, you don't. You don't have to be that at all. That's what he wishes, but that's not what he got. <laughs> okay, and then you say, or maybe did I do something to cause him to spend time with her away from me? No, honey, you didn't do anything to cause it. It's just where he was. It's just what he was about and what he was looking for. It just, you guys did not have that clarity of agreement of what you were trying to do in a relationship right then. You say, I truly do not know if I was right to have this reaction and it's eating me alive. Well, you can thank your parents for giving you doubt about if, whether you're right to have this reaction. Your good heart is just like, this is not for me. This is not what I signed up for. It's not what I want. It feels terrible. That's good information. That's a good part of you that's intact and telling you. I'm terrified I'll always find reasons to push people away. You didn't push him away. You didn't, you set a boundary. You set a boundary and said, I'm not gonna date you anymore, okay? You set a boundary. And that maybe it's best for me to ignore whenever I feel triggered or abandoned. Oh, that's what CPTSD would love us all to do. Ignore when we feel triggered and abandoned. Now I get what you're saying. Sometimes we're overreactive, but I'm just saying under the circumstances, he was with another woman that he had constantly wanted to sleep with. So, you know, yeah, yeah you're not imagining this. Maybe I should have stayed and just pretended to ignore him spending time with her. Yes, cool girl could totally do that. Just stay with him and go, I don't see this at all. I'm not hearing it. I need nothing. I need nothing. Wouldn't your parents have loved it if you needed nothing? Gosh, wouldn't that have been good if you had just erased yourself? But you can't. You are real, Kim. You're a real woman. You have real feelings. You, ha you have love to give. You have a real body, a, r a real potential for life. You're f you have a real future and you get to have love in it, okay? That's real. I'm just gonna tell you, that is real. Everybody who doesn't want that for you, they can just get out of the freaking way. And you're the one who has to get them out of the way, all right? You do not date them and you did right. You got out. Any advice or validation, there you go. I feel I've made huge strides in my recovery. Yay. I meditate, journal, and do yoga every day. Yay. And I'm working with two therapists. In many ways, I'm healthier than I've ever been. But when it comes to intimacy, I'm still so lost in a fog of CPTSD. So you are going to cut out of the fog. You're going to just break right through it. And that's how you're going to do it, by speaking honestly how you feel and allowing your ears to hear the reaction that you're getting sometimes. I honestly had the, real, the, the, the experience once. I really was into a guy. And when I told him for the first time, I think he said something like he wasn't into it. And I, I literally could not hear him. I just remember like his mouth moving and talking and then, 
you know, like I just bulldozed right over it and then I got my experience getting my heart broken. That's what happened. So sometimes it's like the the need for CPTSD to protect us from, from real information is so great sometimes. But as you heal, you're not going to need that coping mechanism. That's what the little girl in you needed to deal with abusive dad. I don't hear this. It's not happening. But now you can just keep taking those layers off of you. You don't have to protect yourself that way. How you protect yourself is by being real and true to who you are. Even if it's messy, even if it's bitchy sometimes, even if it comes off as demanding and some guy leaves you for it. Too bad. Because these are your feelings of a real person. Okay? All right. You say, did it make sense to end the relationship? Oh yeah, it did. Now you're free. You just took one giant step closer to true love because you're not with somebody who's just kind of, you know, treating you like a thing that's in the way of what he really wants. Should you have been more gentle and forgiving? I don't think you sounded like you were so harsh. And uh, you need not hold a grudge against the guy. He was, I, I don't think he ever presented himself as somebody who was serious and monogamous about you so in time you will forget all about him and it'll be awesome you won't think about him anymore kim i hope that helps you being raised with abusive or neglectful parents damages your perception and by that i mean being able to discern what is true what is not true what is my responsibility and what is not my responsibility or my fault and being able to discern when I'm in danger and when maybe I'm just being paranoid. It's so common in a family where there's violence or addiction or mental illness or any of those common family stressors that can cause complex PTSD. It's common for parents to tell the kids, no, your dad is not drunk, your mother's not acting crazy, or no one hit anybody just now. You imagine that, that crashing noise you heard, it was just the television falling off its stand. And you wanted to believe this, but your whole nervous system was like screaming that you were in danger. And it's the kind of combination, blank mind, freaked out body. And like all kids, you, you wanted to get some adult help to get a read on this situation. Like, you know, what am I feeling? Are things actually okay? Can the neighbors hear what's going on? Is it possible they're calling the cops right now? Am I supposed to just turn this feeling off? And you know, there are a hundred ways that this can happen to you, not necessarily with violence or drunkenness, but with any of the weird, crazy, shameful dynamics a family can have. And my point is, if adults lied about the nature of what was going on, saying it was good and normal when everything in reality was saying, this is not good, it's not normal, well, this scrambles our powers of perception and we end up teaching ourselves to override our good sense because it feels dangerous. You know, we think it's, prob it's probably just me, right? If we feel hurt, maybe we're just being oversensitive. And if we feel ashamed, it's probably because we did something. That's how CPTSD mind works when you're a little kid. And so you learn that your perceptions can't be trusted. And over time, you find yourself making these huge irrational mistakes where the red flags were all over the place. But as you were taught, you ignored the fact that the new guy you're dating is maybe a little bit controlling, or you ignored the vague language a boss used about what you would be paid or when, or you ignored a gut feeling that you shouldn't walk alone to your car at night. Or sometimes 
we lose our perception around positive things. We feel merely nervous about a new opportunity, but we confuse that with a gut feeling that there's something wrong with it and we don't show up. Or we offend people by acting suspicious. Or we become afraid to go out anywhere, even out of the house. That's a misperception. And it can get where you think isolation is safety and where sadness is, I don't know, nausea. And the feeling of exhaustion you think is hunger and the feeling of hunger feels like depression. You don't even know what's going on inside yourself. And then come the crossed wires around what to do with your feelings. When I was younger, if I was interested in a guy, I'd act mean to him. And at the hair cutter, instead of asking for what I wanted, I'd turn into, you know, a little just cold little rock right there in the hair cutting chair, afraid if I asked for what I wanted, it would come out aggressive. And then I worried that the hair cutter would take it out on me, on my hair. And it's crazy, right? But I was scared of people and how they saw me. And eventually I did reteach myself to perceive reality, which is crucial to having any control in your life. So if you struggle with accurate perception, you might want to hear how I did this. So first, I took stock as best I could of the areas where my thinking was often distorted. And I used to have a really hard time, for example, in a conflict with someone figuring out what was actually my fault and what was theirs. And this is challenging for everyone, but for people with childhood PTSD, this can be a really big trouble spot. I used to think, Emotionally normal people were either against me or they wanted to control me. And that only, you know, edgy, troubled people were really alive and capable of understanding me. And I know that sounds crazy, or maybe it doesn't to you, but I used to think the truths revealed when people were intoxicated always represented how they really felt and not, not the stuff they do and say when they were sober. Like that was the part you couldn't trust. Mm-hmm. Or I used to be fuzzy about the right amount of information to tell about myself to others. Now, I mean, on YouTube, I've made a career out of TMI. <laughs> so this may not be the greatest example. But another wrong idea I had was thinking that if I didn't prove myself to everyone and make my abilities known to them, like you must know, like I've accomplished things. If I didn't do that, I, I was afraid I'd be invisible and overlooked. So you'll notice that these problems all involve difficulty recognizing and expressing what is true. And the thing is, if you can recognize and say what's true, the spell of distorted thinking is broken immediately. The solution of staying in the truth is simple, even though it can take years to be able to do it, to see and say the truth. So if you were impacted by trauma in childhood, you may have some similar patterns and struggles with knowing what is true. And the great news is, this is something you can start healing. You can start being in reality, and boy, when you can trust yourself to be in reality, everything in life starts getting better. Your relationships, career, money, daily interactions with people, parenting, the way you solve problems, everything gets better. So it doesn't happen automatically though. It, it didn't for me. I work very, very hard to perceive what is true and to be real and to keep my words and actions consistent and truthful. Okay, so what can you do to speed up your healing and sharpen your ability to perceive reality? Here are three things. First, 
stop, at least for now, using mind-altering substances. You might think this is overly severe because, you know, many happy, healthy people have a drink or smoke weed now and then, and you may feel that pot and alcohol provide relief from stress or relief from PTSD symptoms, and symptom relief is a good thing, but hear me out. If you are just a casual drinker or smoker, consider taking a break for a while just so that you can boost your chances of being able to see reality. If you drink or smoke daily or you use other drugs regularly, your perception is likely to be somewhat compromised from day to day, even when you're sober. And there's a time and a place, but the truth is, it's just really, really hard to make life changes when part of your awareness is kind of softened. So consider taking a break from weed and alcohol while you recover. And if you aren't able to stop on your own and you do want to stop, this is the perfect time to go get help in a 12-step program or a detox facility. I, I can't say enough good things about the 12-step way of life. I know a lot of people don't like it, but you know, a whole lot more people have had their life saved by it, including me. And among the many benefits, the meetings are free and you know, you'll never be lonely again. It's a community of people who are all helping and supporting each other start living on a new basis that's smart and spiritual and self-respecting and yes, honest. That's a key principle of recovery. And it's a place where you can start to work out like, what is that? The stuff you didn't learn at home. So it's a good place to start healing your perception. We can't do this in isolation. So think about that. Also, the second way to heal your perception is to start working my daily practice. Um, a lot of you watching, you have tried it or you do it regularly, but in case you're new to it, this is the twin set of techniques, writing fears and resentments, followed by a really simple restful meditation that has just been incredibly helpful for me and many, many people here to help get the stress thoughts out. So writing and meditating help make a space for real thinking and they help heal your mental state so that you can be, you know, less like frenetic and, and more perceptive. Personally, I need these techniques daily so that I can even handle the truth that comes every day. I want to be in reality, but whew, you got to be strong enough for it sometimes. And you can learn these techniques in a free online course I teach. It, if, if you haven't found it, it's always down below. Uh, one of the links at the top of the description section is for my free tools page. You can find it there or on the courses page or a link in the description section. I just put it everywhere. So if you're ever in doubt, just go to my website, crappychildhoodfairy.com. You can see where everything is, the quizzes, the free course, the courses you pay for, all of everything, the blog, the podcast. Finally, if you're brave enough and you really want to get a read on a situation or on your own perceptions and attitudes about something, you can ask other people for help. And I really recommend you choose people that you both like and respect because you're going to ask for honest feedback and you don't want to open the door to cruelty or misguided feedback here. So you pick three people and ask them if they'll help you to see clearly. And you can explain that you're working on improving your perception of reality and trying to make some positive changes. And you, you ask them if they'll tell you gently, but honestly, what they notice about you and your patterns. What do they like about you? Is there a mistake they see you making repeatedly? Is there a blind spot they notice? 
Is there something you might change in your attitude or actions that in, in your friend's opinion would make a positive difference in your relationships? Now, I just want to say this again, don't choose people to ask who are critical or who don't get you. Whatever they tell you might not be trustworthy information in that case. And you always can take anything people say with a grain of salt. But getting honest input from friends, it's scary. And I know when I was stuck one time and asked some friends what they saw, they each said pretty much the same thing. And I give them credit. They each went out of their way to tell me the positives that they saw in me. But they, the negative that they communicated to me was that I was sometimes insensitive to the effect that I had on other people. And they said my words and voice could be harsh, especially when I felt threatened. And they said they had felt at times that I didn't care about them or wasn't hearing them. This was hard to hear. And the part where I didn't care about them was so not true. But I thanked each person, and this is important, I didn't defend myself, I didn't argue with them. If you ask for honest feedback, the thing is, your job is to graciously listen, and if you absolutely have to, you can go and cry your eyes out later. But knowing what the problem is means you can stop worrying about a lot of things that the problem is not. You know, you can stop tripping about that. You're like, okay, that's what it is. The truth doesn't hurt nearly as much as all that speculation and worry and running from it. And anyway, I knew my negative behaviors were left over from my childhood. And this is an explanation, even if it's not an excuse. But we know, right? We know. We know why things are hard for us. And we get to work on them. So I'm the one who pays the worst price for being harsh with people when I'm hurt. And I'm the one who can change that. So I took what my friends shared with me and I made the job of improving my behavior, a top priority in my life. And you can read all the self-help books in the world, but if you really want your life to get better, do your due diligence to find out what the problem really is and undertake seriously, earnestly, with your heart to change it. You can read, you can pray, you can talk to a professional, but there's just no substitute for facing the problem and changing the behavior. And it may not happen overnight, it might take a few years, it might take a lifetime, but just knowing what the problem is will start causing positive changes in you. And the good results you get from that will give you a little boost that you need to keep working on it. Now, when I start feeling stressed in a conversation, I know immediately that I want to restrain what I say a little bit so that I don't add to the trouble by speaking harshly. So that's something I know about myself. It's not self-oppression, it's self-protection. And just that has made a huge difference in my life. It's let me get closer to people and it's made me easier to be around. And that right there is a freaking miracle. <laughs> a good relationship must have trust. And some things violate trust so badly it can never be recovered. For people who were traumatized as kids, having to ignore bad treatment and untrustworthiness from parents, because as a child, of course, no matter how badly your parents betrayed you, you had to keep putting your trust in them. But now later, you may have a poor boundary against people who behave in an untrustworthy way towards you. And instead of getting away from them because of your conditioning, you may get confused, depressed, guilty, and feel helpless and stuck. So my letter today is from a woman I'll call Cheyenne, and she writes, 
Hi, Anna. I got married young, age 20. My husband got a vasectomy within the first two years of marriage because we both agreed we didn't want children. After he finished graduate school almost two years ago, he decided he wanted a baby. He reversed his vasectomy despite my objections, she says. Although to be fair, I wasn't extremely objectionable. I made it clear I didn't want a child, but I supported his right to do what he felt he wanted to do with his body. Once he was reversed, he started pressuring for a baby, telling his mother we were trying. He didn't want to wear condoms and was resentful and angry when I asked him to. And then he later admitted to poking holes to sabotage. And this was in year nine of marriage. All right, I've got the fairy pencil here and I'm circling a whole bunch of stuff here I want to come back to, but I'm going to read all the way through Tracy so I can hear what's going on. And then we'll go through and talk about what I circled. I asked to separate, she says, and we've been separated for about eight to 10 months because there was a short stint when I did go back and then left again. He maintains he's okay not having children and wants the relationship back. He has, quote, mourned the loss of the children he will never have, end quote, and wants a life with me. In the meantime, he's become very extra religious, attending a bunch of church services all the time and emphasizes to me that marriage is for salvation and that kind of thing. In the meantime, I, however, fell for a friend of mine and entered into a relationship with him three months now. But I feel conflicted about the timing of this relationship taking place while I'm separated and I'm recovering from trauma and battling against the pressure to reunite with my husband. The situation feels unbearable and I experience severe guilt about not wanting to be with my husband. He tells me a lot how much he loves me, but I don't feel the same way anymore after what he did to me. However, that attachment is still there. It's attachment without love. I feel like I won't be okay without him, that I will fail, that I will end up homeless even though I have a good job and have maintained my own apartment for nine months now. I want to circle here. Cutting that final string feels so unbelievably unbearable and I don't know how to recover from what I'm guessing is a trauma bond at this point. When I contemplate ending that bond, I go into a suicidal spiral and I want to hurt myself. Oh dear. I've been dealing with feelings of guilt about my new relationship because I have so many hang-ups about the marriage and I'm having extreme difficulty trusting and opening up. To make matters worse, I worry whether my decision-making is trauma-driven as to why I want to be with this friend. He was very emotionally supportive to me during the acute phase after learning of the betrayal. I pursued him, although he was willing. I worry he somehow took advantage of me when I was vulnerable. We tried to be cautious for a long time. It's just kind of a mess. I've been in therapy and I have learned I have codependency issues. I discovered my childhood was extremely traumatic. This was not something I previously accepted because I lived under the delusion that, well, I made it, so I guess it wasn't that bad. I repressed a lot of memories which are now resurfacing as I go through therapy. I also learned I have fearful avoidant disorganized attachment which makes this all the more excruciating because I engage in severe push-pull with my new relationship. So in essence, I guess what I'm seeking is support, reassurance, thoughts on my situation. It's kind of a jumbled mess. Cheyenne. Okay, Cheyenne. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <sighs> Wow. Um, yes, I think I can help. All right, I'll start at the beginning. We'll work our way towards what happened. So you got married young, age 20. That is very young to get married. 
And I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering what prompted that, but it's often the case when somebody gets married that young that there aren't the ingredients there in that relationship that sustain it long-term. That's pretty common. And getting married young can also be a trauma-driven decision. You didn't talk about that past, but getting out of the house is a big motivation. Wanting somebody who will be there for you, like thick and thin, you know, a bond, a legal, you know, joining with somebody. <clears throat> it helps with that fear of abandonment that I hear you've got pretty bad. So your husband got a vasectomy within the first two years because you both agreed you didn't want children. But then he finished grad school a couple years ago and he decided he wanted a baby. So he reversed the vasectomy and you objected and you're, you allow, well, I didn't object that strongly. And you told him very clearly you didn't want a child, but you supported his right to do what he felt he wanted to do with his body. Great. Okay. So once he reversed, he started pressuring for a baby. So that's not cool. Pressuring is not cool. I, it's a very difficult situation because people do change their minds about things and he was married to you, but his, his hope to have a baby was contingent on you. And instead of kind of dealing with the dilemma for what it was that either he had to accept where you were with it or leave the marriage and find somebody else, he did something terrible. So first it sort of worked his way up from pressuring to telling his mother you were trying, like he was in some la-la land with the whole thing. And then he didn't want to wear condoms and was resentful and angry when you asked him to, which is also very childish, right? Um, and then he later admitted to poking holes, to sabotage. And that was nine years into the marriage. So this happens. I've heard of this sometimes. The slang word for this is stealthing. And it's the word for when someone takes off the condom without telling their partner. Usually it would be the man. Occasionally it's the woman. And then poking holes is another version of the same thing. And poking holes, like some people do that because they secret, they want the sensation, but not the truth to tell the other person. And it is abuse. It is abuse because what you consented to was, the, was sex with a condom that wasn't going to lead to pregnancy. That's what you consented to. So he did something to you that you, there was no consent for, and there were grave consequences too. It's a terrible thing to do. I don't blame you at all for being betrayed. And I think it would be virtually impossible to come back from that kind of betrayal, especially from someone, I don't know, it just, I'm not hearing anything that he really gets it. But that's the least of the problems right now is whether he gets it anymore. So yes, he sabotaged and you separated. It's been eight or 10 continuous months now because you separated at first, came back and then separated again. And that's normal for a couple who separates over something. He's telling you now he's okay not having kids and wants the relationship back. I can see why you don't really trust that. He has, quote, mourned the loss of the children he'll never have. Okay, that's, I'm sure that's what, you know, maybe he went to a therapist and that's what he was told he would have to do if he wanted to be back with you. And now he wants a life with you. But possibly he's somebody with trauma who will say anything or do anything or abandon himself and what he wants in life just so he doesn't lose somebody. But the relationship is pretty damaged now. Then you say he's become very extra religious, attending a bunch of church services all the time and emphasizes to me that marriage is for salvation and that kind of thing. And the way you write that and that kind of thing, it just sounds like um, this is not a value you share. You're not on board with it. Now, his wife left him and he made horrible mistakes and it would be normal for somebody to, you know, turn to their faith and go deeper when they're in 
going through a loss like that. So I don't know. I don't know if this is his permanent thing. I'm not going to denigrate it, but it doesn't satisfy. It just doesn't answer the, the problem, does it, of what he did. In the meantime, you fell for a friend and entered into a relationship with him, and you've been together three months now, but you feel conflicted about the timing uh, that it's while you're separated. And yes, I guess separated implies that you're holding space to get back together. And did you promise that you would be faithful? I don't know. So if that's a dishonest thing that's going on, yes, that's not good. Um, even, even though the person abused you, um, for you, it's obviously giving you a lack of peace and therefore not good from trauma, you're battling against the pressure to reunite with your husband. So yeah, that's what we call a rebound, a rebound relationship. And the thing is, you're not really emotionally available right now. You are processing a lot. You're still dealing with your attachment and your longing and your feeling that you can't leave your marriage. And it's, I just don't believe it's fair to another person who's trying to sincerely have a relationship with you to, to try to show up for them under those circumstances. I don't think that's honest or fair. Even if you are honest, you know, just continuing to have the relationship is inherently unfair and dishonest and is going to hurt him and is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt everybody. The thing that you're avoiding right now is the feelings coming up and you say you've been in therapy and I'm so glad, I'm so glad you're in therapy because you are in one of those moments when it's so important to have that strong support, especially when you told me that you get suicidal feelings when you think about ending the marriage, even though you don't love them, you don't want to be there, you're really into somebody new. It just makes you feel like you're going to die. That sounds like abandonment melange. And I hope your therapist knows about abandonment melange. And if they don't, I suggest you and your therapist read Pete Walker's book, CPTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. Pete Walker. And that book talks about abandonment melange. And I think you're going to relate to this, okay? As he defines it, it is a toxic mix of emotions of intense grief, rage, and terror, all three happening at the same time. And I can tell you, I have that. When I first heard that definition, I was like, ah, that is what I've always had. And it has helped me so much to have a name for it. There's a name for it. And when it happens, you can say to yourself, I'm having abandonment melange. You go, okay, okay. So this terrible feeling like life isn't worth living. It's, a, it's almost like a bad dream or a scary movie that's playing in your mind and you can't quite come back from it until you can say to yourself, this is abandonment melange. And so you still have the feelings, but the fear that it's like that bad calms down. You just know, yes, it feels like this and then it passes because this is a memory. It's an emotional memory from my childhood. So that sounds very much what you're describing just sounds like that. And abandonment melange keeps people with CPTSD hostage. Our own emotions keep us hostage in relationships we do not want to be in. And that is so much how, well, this is a lot how trauma gets passed from generation to generation as it was already bad before the kids, but now the kids mean the parents have to stay together at least for a while. And I could totally see that happening for you, um, given his agenda and his seeming you know, misunderstanding of, of, of the betrayal that he did for you. And not just like, he didn't just res not respect your wishes. He tr tried to trick you into a very terrible situation. No, it's broken. That's no good. So you've got guilt, 
um, about about the new relationship. And I think the guilt is because it's not right to try to be with somebody when you're going through all this healing and trauma yourself. That's not right. But I don't blame you at all for just wanting somebody to be there for you, to have a friend and, you know, to put their arms around you and all that. What a nice thing to have. But, but the trauma can be made so much worse by the dynamics of a romantic relationship that you are not really in a position to have. I've been in therapy and I've learned I have codependency issues. Okay. I believe you. I, everything I'm hearing, it's even more than that. I discovered my childhood was extremely traumatic. You didn't accept it before. You sort of toughed it out. I, I used to do that too. And that's, that's fine. That's a good survival mechanism. And then things get bad enough that you have to kind of look at what it is. Okay. And here we are. So, so you've learned you have a fearful avoidant and disorganized attachment, which makes this all the more excruciating because uh, you do severe push-pull. Yeah, push-pull is emotional abuse. I hate to tell you. I don't want you to do that to that guy. Disorganized attachment is um, a very good reason to be in therapy. It's a very hard condition. You can work on this. You can heal the symptoms. You can learn to show up for a relationship in a more steady way. But I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that you can do it under the circumstances right now. So my suggestion to you, Cheyenne, is to take some time to be alone, to go to therapy, to participate maybe in 12-step meetings, and to have friends and to do exercise and to do things that give you joy and make your life stable. And congratulations on being able to have your own apartment and work and take care of things. See, you can do this. You can do this. And there's such a great joy in being able to do that. And the, the pleasure of making yourself a nice, healthy dinner and eating it and washing the dishes and sitting down and, you know, watching TV, reading a book, and then turning out the light and going to bed. I know there's terror that it's going to be like that forever, but it's very unlikely to be like that forever. This is your chance. This is your time to finally heal what happened to you in the past. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.